Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. I'm a little damp. It uh, looks like I'm going to get damper, rainier. Got a house in Carolina, right on the coast, and it's, uh, as we speak, bullseye on the target. And uh, I'll let you know about that. And uh, Mrs. Bennett and I are watching closely. We've had two, three hurricanes come across on us. Uh, we're right uh, near the water. And as I said, two or three hurricane, North Carolina hurricanes have come across on uh, our little boy's uh, sand pail there. <laughs> Back when he was a young kid. We shall see. Man, this looks like a big storm, though. Uh, This is the show that translates Donald Trump, often defends him, uh, because I've never seen anything like the war on Donald Trump. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to take an honest look at the current administration. We'll provide a thoughtful analysis, we hope, to you on the news of the day. Joining me on the show today is Michael Anton. He is a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. Really smart, really expert. He is at present a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. We'll get the latest on Syria and Afghanistan, on Iran. And uh, is the Taliban suing for peace in Afghanistan? But uh, first, a few things I'd like to talk about, uh, things that you wanted to talk about. Uh, Claude, let's do some emails. So, yeah, we've got tons of emails, and we'll try to get to uh, a few of them. Letters. Today. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. I think you're too young for that, but I think that was the Perry Como show. They used to do that, but one of okay. those old shows in the 50s. I will be corrected if I'm wrong. Well, I'll, I'll look it up on YouTube to see okay. if I can find Excellent. it. Clear. Excellent. Uh, so, <laughs> we'll start with author, uh, author Bullard. Uh, and this was on the, uh, most recent show, Don't Leave Jesus for Judas was the title. We got that from our friend Mark Thiessen. This is about the Catholic Church scandals. Correct. Right. Correct. Right. right. Uh, so the only thing he put in the email was a scripture from Matthew 18, verse 5 through 7. It says, and whoso shall receive such. Can you do this from memory? No. No, no, no. Close. Okay. Come close. <laughs> I could give you, I could summarize it for you if I needed to. Um, so he says. I could too. So don't mess with the kids. But right. We, right. Don't mess with the kids. <laughs> right. But that's not. Right. That's. Yeah. I'm a Catholic. You know, I, I don't know my Bible as well as you do. But there you go. Uh, Matthew uh, 18, Says, uh, and whoso shall receive such a uh, little child in my name receives me. But whosoever offends one of these little ones uh, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck uh, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of the offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. This is the worst thing that's going on. Um, again, if I were teaching a philosophy class between the natural good and the moral good, natural good, natural bad, I mean, the hurricane is going to be devastating. It's going to be awful. Some people may lose their lives. Lots of property may de- be destroyed totally, including ours. That's a natural disaster. It's not a moral disaster. What's going on in the church is a moral disaster. Um, millstones around the neck, you know, that's what's deserved for this corruption of these children violation of these children. It is horrible and disgusting. Do I leave the church? No. I liked what Mark Thiessen said. You don't abandon Jesus because of Judas. But Judas is wearing robes here, I guess. Well, Judas was one of the 12, right? Right, right. And, um, you know. Handling the money from what I understand. Yeah, yeah Jesus knew what he was doing. I mean, uh, this, this, the, the, the Bible is is very, very uh, wise in this regard. So, you know, um you may not want to support the church. You may not want to write your check to the church. You may want to just give it directly to the poor, or the little sisters of the poor, or the homeless shelter, or the Catholic school, or whatever. But uh, this is horrible. Uh, as we speak, I believe Cardinal Worrell, Washington, D.C., is heading to Rome, where he may be uh, 
taken down. We'll see, but there's still things swirling about the Pope. Thank you very much. Who was it who sent that? Uh, that was Arthur Bullard. Arthur, thank you, Arthur. Thank Thanks you, for Arthur. the reminder. No, no reason uh, to avoid uh, authoritative texts in this situation. Absolutely. Uh, this next email comes from David Smalley uh, from Westlake, Ohio. It's about the uh, uh, Urban Meyer situation in Ohio State. Another abuse question, a little different, but go ahead. So he says, uh, I love the podcast and all the fantastic uh, guests you have each week. Uh, regarding- uh, don't closs over that. I mean, that's a not- <laughs> I want our audience to be reminded. Okay, okay. Let's let that sit for a second. Okay. <laughs> let that sit for a second. Regarding Urban Meyer and the recent revelations uh, that he knew about the history of spousal abuse being perpetrated by one of his assistant coaches and his apparent uh, improvement in uh, memory after fact-checking his answers at the previous press conference, uh, he says, while it's great to give everyone the benefit of due process, please don't allow your love for college football uh, to cloud your judgment of the situation or feel like you need to provide uh, air cover for Urban Meyer. All right. Well, uh, first of all, my love for college football does not extend to Ohio State football or <laughs> the Ohio State. Right. And there's as, very as, little love for the fans. As, as my audience knows, this is uh, kidding. As last weekend watching games, I was invited a bunch of people to our house and somebody I didn't know very well turned out to be an Ohio State guy. So we were kidding each other about that. But uh, it didn't. It wasn't a sty in my eye about that. It wasn't because I love college football. I just I think it's a complicated situation. I don't want to get back into the details again. But, you know, uh, yes, that Urban Meyer flub at the press conference of course he did i still think there's a question of knowledge do all these coaches know that they're responsible and i guess this is the conclusion for the behavior of their assistants toward their spouses and the privacy of their homes i think it's it's a little tricky because marriages are tricky things and um you know, he did intervene, he and his wife, earlier, but uh, saying, you know, the, the, the question of credibility here because the press conference is real and serious, and I take it seriously. Um, maybe, you know, this was kind of a signal. Yes, did Ohio State want him back on the field? Sure. But maybe we got a signal here that uh, people need to pay more attention. As somebody on one of the sports talk shows said, you know, these coaches didn't know they had to reread their contracts and see exactly all the r- r- range of things for which they are responsible, Claude. And... Um, and I expect they're doing that now. But I know I'm I'm not for pats on the wrist where there are serious fences. I just think this is uh this is not like the situation that we were talking about earlier with the abuse of children in the church. Um that's knowing, that's deliberate, and that's just unthinkable and unforgivable. Yeah, and he, say, he goes on to say it's even more difficult because it goes against the culture that many of these young men observe growing up. Uh, so that's David in Westlake, Ohio. Uh, let's see. Joe, from- my, a friend of mine said, you know, if you're a head coach and you got what, what do these guys have on their staffs? Eight coaches, eight or ten. Oh yeah, I mean to say the least. Yeah, eight I mean or at ten a big coaches and yet, coaches right? tend to be macho guys, and so one or two of these macho guys may be a little too macho at home. Right. So right. keep an eye. Yep. There you go. Uh, you remember our buddy uh, Joe from Seattle, right? Uh, Joe, our the great the Joe. Days, yeah, yeah, man. So, radio days. Yeah, he wanted to uh, talk about uh, the. Um, Gosh, it was a podcast we did uh, a few shows back about RV. Well, it wasn't about RVs, but we had Joe Farkas on, and we had an email in to talk about millennials and behind this boom in RV. RV sales. sales yeah, right, why are millennials buying RVs? They're buying them, and they're just moving around and, and living in them. And so, uh, Joe, Joe's setting us straight. We need to send this to Joel, by the way. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah. um, so, well, he's not necessarily set, setting us straight. He just says that it's funny because he and his wife – uh, drove their kids across country in their RV. They have have one. They went, okay. from, went from Washington State uh, to Fort Bragg. 
uh, in North Whoa, Carolina. Yeah, that's yeah. a long trip. Took their two dogs, uh, their cat, uh, his wife Jenny, uh, daughter Lily. They thought it was relaxing. Uh, so and, and the podcast. They took the podcast with them. Too. Yeah, well, because we did we did this podcast a while back. Sure. Just, yeah, just <laughs> coming to light. Yep. That's um, <laughs> but that's how people listen. You know, they they I do. listen. I know, do. Uh, Driving so, along. Yeah. Yeah. And so he says, uh, uh, Sophia and Benjamin got to see uh, the natural beauty of America, and when the beauty overwhelmed them, uh, they relaxed with some good stories. Uh, so he says his his son Benjamin even learned how to drive the big rig he sent some pictures and so he's wearing a marshawn lynch jersey uh obviously a seattle seahawks fan and his son is wearing a usa hat and he says that now marshawn lynch look may i interrupt didn't he the other night sit on the bench while they or star spangled banner right so he's been doing that his whole career yeah i know all right so i'm not sure about wearing that jersey joe but anyway let's yeah it's funny because he says those two are not mutually exclusive exclusive in my house yeah okay good good okay yeah uh, and yeah, they made it safely in their destination. He says, being born in 1979, I'm not a millennial, uh, but his wife is. She was born in 1982 in East Germany. Um, yeah, and so he says he knows how to pick a great RV. He says he's got a 2003 Monaco Windsor. So it means nothing to me. Right, I don't know what that is. But I guess that's the RV. <laughs> let's get to the punchline. <laughs> that, that, no, that's it. That is the. That's the. Oh, then there's another. Is there another? Yeah, we email? have another. Email oh, that was Joe. All right, Joe. Right, thanks. Yeah, no, Great Joe to hear from you again. Yeah, Sorry. All right. We have someone else who wants to make a point here. About... Exactly. Don in Redmond, Washington. He was getting a lot of Washington State listeners. Exactly. Sorry about you, Dub. There lost to Auburn. I think it was, it was cool. a close game. They close came game. out flat. They came yeah, out flat. Yeah, a little flat. flat. I, think I know. The moment at yeah. first may be a little yeah. too and big. And they lost. Lost it the first quarter. Right. Yeah. Don in Redmond says, as a counterpoint to the praise of innovative millennials buying RVs and traveling from campsite to campsite. Yeah. <laughs> we said campsite. Okay, okay. <laughs> but he said... Uh, Let's sober up, he's saying. Yeah, he said... Is it sober that, up in your enthusiasm. Yeah, he said, is it that they are investing in a depreciating resource? In the same show, Mr. Farkas stated that home ownership is the number one differentiator between income inequality in the United States. Please make sure that your audience understands that the mobility of RVs do not come with the economic security provided by home ownership. Okay, so it's not a home. It's a movable home, but it doesn't – I guess it decreases in value over time rather than your house, which right. should de- increase in value. Right. So that's to be borne in mind. Okay, fair enough. Good. But it, we're making a somewhat different point here about the interest in mobility and getting, being able to get up and go. And if you're in California trying to be in the middle class or even the lower middle class, probably a good idea to have an RV and get out of town. Yeah, absolutely. And mobility and flexibility is big in millennials, even in job searches. And, and, and a lot of jobs now, I mean, I think that teleworking and working from home or, or anywhere is the is like the new okay. health benefit yeah, that okay. jobs used to use to pull talent in. Okay. I think mobility is what – and flexibility is what jobs are now to pull top talent in. Good, good, good. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, good, fine. We'll see if uh, our friend Joel has a response to these. Okay, go ahead. Look at Joel on it. Also, um, we have uh, Andrew Smiths from Irvine, California. Irvine, say yeah. Sorry. Uh, it says, Bill, uh, this is just a short me- a short note expressing my gratitude for your podcast and especially the latest podcast title. You must have listened a while back. Uh, Chicago needs our attention. Yeah, that's when we had Heather McDonald. It was Heather Mack. It wasn't yeah. so long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that she's the type of guest that you should have on the show more often. Uh, her scholarship, vast knowledge of her subject matter, and national prominence make her a uh, great guest. 
and brings out the best in you as an interviewer. Thank you, and please carry on with your good work, bringing to light conservative thought and commentary on the important issues of the day. Yeah, she really uh, was very strong, very smart, very strong. And she said, you know, the huge report comes out of Chicago saying, essentially, be politically correct when you're arresting people. And, right. you know, if you get somebody who's LGBTQ, don't call them ma'am or sir. You know, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous stuff, frankly, as opposed to, you know, getting in those neighborhoods and preventing these killings. And, you know, she, she's just always a strong dose of reality. She's got a new book out. Yeah, we're going to have her on. We're going to have her on very soon about it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Uh, and then this final email is from uh, Alan in Washington State. Again, Washington State. I mean, <laughs> we're, we are. We are. What do they say? And, oh, brother, where art thou? We are mass communicating. I mean, we're, we're here right now in, in Maryland, and we are mass communicating across the country. No, absolutely. So it's amazing, the power of technology, Claude. There you go. Days and months afterwards. Exactly. So. Time, space. <laughs> None of it matters. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, he said he's written to you before uh, about his son's uh, about with drugs and alcohol, and you were kind uh-huh. enough to read my email and letter and responses on your podcast. Right. No, I, no, I remember. But uh, he says more here, which is, I think, uh, worth worth repeating to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. It's about. He doesn't uh, mind us repeating this, right? Oh, no, no, no not at all. Yeah. Uh, he talks about the interview we did with John Walters, uh, and he wants to make a couple Former drug czar, my, my deputy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says that his statement about marijuana being the number one contributor to more serious drug use, uh, not having to convince uh, me, this is uh, our, our buddy here emailing, about how bad pot is and that it's a great way drug, I do ask that, he, uh, fat, that his facts be checked. However, as it is more commonly held today that much more of our root cause problems these days uh, is drugs legally prescribed for pain, post-surgery, etc., creating lifelong addiction. Uh, I am genuinely interested in knowing the truth, and I'm hoping uh, you might uh, have uh, the best ability to identify the truth behind that. Well, it's uh, it's complicated. Uh, well, no, it's not that complicated. Most people who get into you know drugs beyond marijuana start with marijuana, and uh, people who uh, you know get hooked on opioids, uh, many of them started you know w- with marijuana. But uh, there's no question that uh, the overdosing on uh, on these narcotics has brought a lot of people into into serious dependence. And we can do both things at once. But what remains true is that more people are in treatment for marijuana-related problems than any other drug, particularly young people. So um, he also says something about wanting to hear both sides of the argument. I, I mean, we could have a marijuana advocate on, but, I, I, you know, do we really need one? I mean, the states are going crazy trying to legalize this stuff. They've gotten the wedge, and they were smart. The wedge is, well, you know, it really helps some people who are sick. Um I noticed uh, Jimmy Buffett is now a big investor in uh, marijuana. Okay. Margaritaville. Yeah, wasting away. That'll, that'll waste you away. But, um, yeah, no, there's many fronts in this in this effort. And the legalization of marijuana is just not going to help anything. Right. And so, yeah, he says, uh, thanks for covering this topic uh, from time to time. One more suggestion. Uh, I admit that I suggested to you last time. Uh, please host. Yeah, he says on both, uh, both sides of the forum. Um, yeah, so he said he felt like we don't adequately cover that. But look, you know. the argument that people make is it's a, a it's a free country. Uh, you know, people should be able to do what they want. The alcohol uh, thing. Alcohol, same as alcohol. You're going to get rid of alcohol. Uh, three, you know, this is medical marijuana, and um, you know those arguments are just are just so familiar. Um, but you know, you, you can't get a prescription for medical marijuana. You can get a note from a doctor, but you can't get a prescription because it's not medicine. Okay. 
and that remains the case. All right, uh, thanks very much for those emails. We will continue to read them on air. Uh, and um, what do people do if they want to send an email? Oh, yeah, just email BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Got to write out podcast. Yes, you have to write out podcast. Okay. Because, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, if you're token up, I might be too long. You know? <laughs> right. Okay, I don't, what do I know? Okay. Well, I was mentioning earlier, I was making a kind of oblique reference to the uh, storm, the hurricane, which, um, when many of you hear this podcast, will have uh, come. I don't know if it will be gone. It may linger for days and days. But those of us who own uh, property in North Carolina on the coast, which is, includes Mrs. Bennett and myself, uh, are very concerned about it. Category four, category five. Uh, it is a natural um, disaster, perhaps, coming. But it will go eventually. And my question today, Claude, uh, to ponder is... The storm against Donald Trump uh, is a Category 4 or 5 every day. Whether you approve of him or not, and I generally approve of him, I've never seen anything like this. And people have said to me, well, this is bound to die down at some point or bound to die down. You know, when the results start coming in, people see that he's not going to blow up the world and he starts to get some results. Will we see, you know, typical readings, typical reactions that we have with most presidents? Irony here is that this is perhaps the most successful start in the presidency in terms of policy and results. Any president in recent history, the economics, the foreign policy, the judges, uh, just a host of things, and yet this Category 5 storm against him on all fronts. Think of the elements of this storm. It's kind of a perfect negative storm. Just, you know, uh, the constant barrage by the media, uh, particularly the cable media, CNN, MSNBC, the Woodward book, the anonymous uh, column in the uh, New York Times, the opposition in the Congress, the prayers of Democrats that they will get a majority in the House, which they may well do, and impeach him. The anger, the fury, the um, hatred, the leading some people, you know, on the on the fringe, including Hollywood people, to talk about possible assassination. The latest was you know, some aging actress, Carol, somebody, I can't even remember her name. But, and then, you know, a, a sort of a sidelight, all this talk about socialism, this crazy talk about socialism. We'll, we'll deal with that another time. But this uh, invective against the president is like nothing I've ever seen before. I've been around a while. I've seen a lot of invective against Dan Quayle, the Bushes, Ronald Reagan, any number of Republicans, any number of conservatives. But this is unparalleled. I keep thinking of, like they say, we, North Carolina's never seen a storm like this. White House never seen a storm like this. And it's, of course, it's got to create some um, distractions inside the White House and for the president. Uh, unfortunately, distracts distracts him from his message, which is a, in many ways a very positive message. But um, I've never seen anything like it. Have you? Have you ever seen anything like that? No, I haven't. I don't think it's going to die down, and I no. don't think it's going to end. No. Um, and small things kind of catch my attention. Like, Go ahead. When you watch the outrage by the media, everything's a 10. On a scale from 1 yeah. to 10, 10 yeah. being the most outrageous, everything's a 10. Yeah. Everything's – you know how CNN has this recurring breaking news <laughs> crawl on the, right. where everything's breaking news even though it was two days ago? Um everything's a 10, no my, matter what he does. In my church, we have the venial sin and the mortal sin. Every sin Donald Trump commits by the lights of the media and the Democrat is a mortal sin. Right. Every Not only is every sin he commits a mortal sin, every act is a sin. 
<laughs> transgression of some sort or another. Right. And so he's he's guilty upon waking up in the morning. Is it St. Paul says each of us sins seven times a day? Somebody says that. Uh, I, the seven times reference might be uh, when okay. a disciple asks Jesus, how many times do we forgive a brother? He says seven times 70 okay. times in a day. Okay. okay. So it's more so about. So it's a lot. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. And in his case, his political sins are every day and on a regular basis. Yeah. And the outrage is always a 10. Um, and I think, uh, you know, some of the frustrating things about it, uh, when, you're, when, when you're trying to be simple about things, is he also can be his own worst enemy. You know, and, and, and what is this? People have said, well, you know, they feel he stole the presidency. Hey, maybe. Um, I do think there was a sense that uh, all these critics, most of these critics, believed, wanted and believed Hillary Clinton would be president. And they're sorely disappointed. I'd like the audience's help here. What do you think accounts for all the bile? All the hatred, all the venom, is it what's been said that, you know, they feel he stole the presidency from Hillary, that he's illegitimate, he has no right to be president? Or is it the things that he stands for? Or is it the people who elected him? Is it is it a kind of secret desire to, to get at them? Uh, it's, it, it's partly a Trump they hate, but it's also the people who supported him, the deplorables. Uh, write me about this. And where do people write, Claude, if they want to? Uh, send they can an send an email to BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. The Bill Bennett podcast at not the just Bill Bennett Sorry. podcast. At oh gmail. my gosh, erase that. It could go somewhere else. It could go somewhere. <laughs> Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. What do you think? What explains this intensity? I've never seen this category five kind of intensity against a president or a vice president, and I've seen a lot of it. This is uh, unbelievable. I guess he's got tough skin. Some of it gets absorbed because it, you know, he, it rankles him. Uh, it comes in and he, you know, will, will spit out in, in anger. But then he seems to move on. I mean, he seems to move on with his day. Right. You see these very tough, rough, hard-hitting, hitting back, uh, hard-hitting uh, tweets he sends out. But then, um, then later in the day, you see him at meetings or giving uh, giving out medals of honor or having people sitting around a table talking. So he does seem to be able to function. Anyway, we'd appreciate your thoughts on this. So write to Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail dot com. There you go. Okay, very good. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Let's welcome Michael Anton to the show. Michael is a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. At present, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Well, Michael, let me report from my front. Uh, We have a beach house on the coast of North Carolina. Category 5 seems to be coming our way. I don't know that you can do anything about it. I'm just telling everybody I know. Hopes that someone well, comes I up did with notice on the on the news earlier this morning that they think by the time it gets to North Carolina, it might be a mere Category Three, which mm-hmm. isn't right. the greatest uh, relief to you, but it might offer a little bit of relief. Yeah, we're a hundred feet from the ocean and facing yeah. it, so we'll we'll see, we'll see. We, we've we've seen it before. Uh, any comment on the categ- the continuing Category Five hurricane that is the war on Donald Trump? Well, look. I- I think the president was right when he, at one of the rallies last week, obviously he's angry about that op-ed. He should be. He has every right to be. We're talking, of course, about the New York Times op-ed from a po- an appointee of his, anonymously saying, I'm working to thwart his agenda. But it's so brazen. It's just so outrageously out of line that I don't think it's helping the anti-Trump. I mean, I noticed a lot of, of, of anti-Trump people felt compelled to go out, you know, either on TV or Twitter or, you know, somewhat, you know, to write something saying, you know, look, I can't stand the guy and I didn't vote for him and I oppose everything he's doing, but this is too far. 
right? This yeah. is anti-democratic. Yeah. This this veers into coup territory. This isn't working. This is an anti-constitutional way of running the government. So you know, if even anti-Trump people, fervent anti-Trump people like David Frum, are saying stuff like that, you know, I okay. this maybe went a little too far. All right. So take that out of the mix, and what we've yeah. got left is a Category Four Point Seven Five. Yeah, I mean, still... it, it's 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 out there all the time uh, in the media, the Democrats, uh, critics. Uh, you just you, you just can't get away from it. It's everywhere. Hollywood. Uh, what yeah, what no, is there's, this? There's has, clear... it, has it been sufficiently explained what what this is about? Why this is the case? I think the the answer is actually fairly obvious that it's it is that Trump is the first politician of either party to break from a roughly now 30-year, perhaps longer, but at least a 30-year bipartisan consensus that there, there is only one way to do things when it comes to trade, when it comes to war, when it comes to economics, immigration. And, you know, this, we, you, let's say Mitt Romney had been elected in 2012. There would have been Democratic resistance and anger, but nothing like this. Mm-hmm. Let's say Jeb Bush had won the nomination uh, and, and then and won the presidency in 2016. Similar. It wouldn't have been this level of, of, of hatred. And I think the reason is some, some people in the, the Uniparty and their, and their foot soldiers on the left sort of deep down get that uh, conventional Republicans are, if not on their side, at least more closely aligned to what they really want and so don't pose as much of a threat. They're not trying to fundamentally change the, the order of things, and Trump is. 30 That's years what, takes us to – Back to the end of Reagan, so from yeah. George Herbert Walker forward. And do you do you exclude Reagan from that? He's he's. I exclude. Look, Reagan sometimes gets the blame um, for the 1986 amnesty that they said. People say, well, this sort of kicked right. off you mm-hmm. know, the current era that we're in. And I sympathize with the argument, except I also believe Reagan's biographers who say that he thought he was actually making a deal that both sides would uphold. Yeah. That, that okay, we we have a relatively small population of illegal immigrants. They're not going to go home. The country doesn't have the will. You know, there's no public sentiment for mass deportations. So if we can get the border under control, uh, an amnesty makes political sense for this population that's already here if it's a one-time thing. So I don't think the, the difference between Reagan and people who offered up you know, uh, the uh, various gang of eight, gang of seven, uh, comprehensive immigration reform type um, proposal since is that I think Reagan, when he made that deal, thought he was making a real deal that the enforcement side would be honored. Whereas when John McCain, when Lindsey Graham, you know, uh, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, nor do I want to necessarily speak ill of a, of a senator who's a president's ally in the case of Lindsey Graham, a lot of cases. But the, the point still must be made that when John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and other um, GOP senators in recent years, in the last at least 15 years, including and, and of course including President George W. Bush, for whom I worked, when they talked about comprehensive immigration reform, it was pretty transparently obvious that they didn't care at all about border security and enforcement. They just wanted to get the amnesty part under the belt, and 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 then go forward on the on the on the basis of the status quo. So I do exempt Reagan from that. I think he was uh, acting in good faith, making a, a deal that he thought was a good deal, and. Uh, you know, just his, his, the people that he made the deal with did not hold up to their end of the bargain. I don't think that's what he expected them to do, and I think he was disappointed by that. It's very interesting, and this is new ground, new explanation, I think, compared to a lot of what you hear. Let me just push you a little bit on the Reagan-Trump. Is, is Reagan was not part of the Uniparty, as you call it? No, I think, look, you know, the, the famous, the famous uh, 
phrase, I think it's, I know it was used in the Goldwater campaign. I'm not sure if it originates there was, you know, a choice, not an echo, right? right. Give us something that's actually different to what's going on. So the 1980 election was one of those, like the 2016 election, you had a choice, not an echo. It wasn't, we can either do this sort of at 30 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour, but either way we're going in the same direction, which is what a lot of subsequent elections have been about. Um, and he really changed the direction of the country in a fundamental way. Uh, so I, I, I don't consider Reagan to be part of the Uniparty. I think his whole career since you know, he launched his political career essentially by giving a speech in favor of, of, of Goldwater. I mean, he became the governor of my home state. My grandfather was a political – was a Democrat, a, a, you know, a, a kind of centrist Democrat in California, but a, but a law enforcement officer, an elected sheriff, and became a political ally of the governor because the governor was tough on crime. Right. And, you know, the, the, the phrase at the time, you don't hear this much anymore, was Dust Bowl Democrats, uh, yeah. meaning, uh, you know, people yeah. who fled. Okay, now, my family, it wasn't actually weren't actually Dust Bowl Democrats I mean, in the sense of literally having come from Oklahoma or wherever in Texas in the 30s. But they appealed to that th- that kind of sentiment and that kind of constituency, you know, uh, a a more or less blue collar or, or middle class centrist Democrat you know, uh, very much part of the FDR coalition, but, you know, not not enthused by or happy about all the radicalization that was going on in the 60s. And Reagan appealed to them. And they, you know, they voted for him uh, in, in big numbers in, the, in his two gubernatorial elections. And that same kind of constituency, he found a way to appeal to nationwide in the 1980 campaign. So just uh, this is actually uh, personal to me because people have said to me, Bill Bennett, you served with Ronald Reagan. You were pretty close to him, which I was. Uh, you were Secretary of Education. Uh, you've talked about how you revered Reagan, and now you're defending the heck out of Trump. How can you put those two together? To you, this makes sense, right? Tell it me, makes sense tell, to me. Tell me what I should say in my own defense. In what people ways are they the more same, similar than different? People say the same thing to me and to my friends uh, at the Claremont Institute and to my now colleagues at Hillsdale College. They say, okay. you guys are supposedly principled conservatives. Uh-huh. You know, you were for Reagan. You guys write a lot of talk. You talk all the time about Lincoln, Churchill, and George Washington. How can these be your heroes? Right. And yet you're... you're and you they know, you tell, tell me that, that I wrote the Book of Virtues, and how could I yeah, possibly... Yeah, and you're, so you must be yeah. a hypocrite. Yeah. Well, I say that, you know, look, you gotta, you got to judge a, a politician by his program, number one, and by its effectiveness. So, yes, there's a difference between Trump and Reagan in the sense that, you know, remember when Reagan was, was actually alive and active in politics, he was constantly denounced as being dumb, yeah. ill-read, yep. Ill, badly educated, yep. just an actor. Yep. When, in fact, if you go, you look at the record now, you realize that he was actually a pretty serious intellectual. He wrote all of these radio commentaries. He, he wrote his own speeches for years when he was out on the on the trail, both campaigning for candidates and giving speeches in defense of the American system. So now, now of course, you know, once a conservative is dead, the left usually finds reasons to praise them, yeah. but only only for the purpose of denouncing the living, right? Uh, the so, living conservative, correct. Right. right. The living conservative is always a buffoon <laughs> and an idiot. The dead conservative, well, he's okay. Actually, in hindsight, even though we trashed him the, up and down like crazy when he was alive, now that he's dead, we can use him to compare him unfavorably to someone who's alive and he's therefore useful to us. Or a turn of phrase, we can live with the dead. Yeah. Okay. So we just can't live with the living. This is a difference between Reagan and Trump. No one's going to say that um, Trump, you know, is writing radio commentaries on on conservative philosophy the way Reagan did. But Trump's actual program is very conservative. 
It's the defense of the country. Mm-hmm. It's to conserve the country. It's to protect the border. I mean, Trump's line, which gets mocked, uh, if, we don't have a, if we don't have a border, we don't have a country, maybe the most conservative thing that's been spoken by any politician of either party <laughs> in 25 years, yeah. right? Uh, it's it's trump who wants to reorient foreign policy fundamentally american interest you gotta interrupt it's funny you say that if you don't have a border you don't have a country it's kind of a self-evident proposition isn't it it it, it should be yeah but you know as we both know self-evident propositions become ridiculed and forgotten Mm -hmm. therefore their restatement becomes necessary and you you know something is 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 uh, important to restate when in the restating of it, all elite opinion howls and goes insane. It means, yeah, this thing really does need to be restated often because it's being denied yeah. uh, everywhere. Yeah. So um, there's so many ways in which Trump is conservative, fundamentally conservative. Now, he doesn't – here's the other thing too. Um, the conservatives, one of the reasons they, they don't like him is they say, well, we have, you know, we know what conservative ideology is supposed to be. It's been worked out at all these think tanks over the years, and there's a bunch of boxes you need to check that you're you're for this and you're for this and you're for this. Trump doesn't line up with those boxes. So I don't think that Reagan would say that about conservatism. You know, Reagan molded a platform fit for the times that he was in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, uh, he wanted to restart a moribund economy. He wanted to. Um, uh, strengthen the military and, and, and be more assertive in confronting the Soviet Union. In other words, no detente, no detente. The America was not going to accept the permanence of international communism and the enslavement of half of Europe. We're, we, we, we didn't have the ability to just stop it of ourselves, but we weren't going to accept it and learn to live with it. We were going to do what we could to fight it. Right. And then, the, and, and the third thing I would say is just a sense that, uh, America's spirits were low. Its national pride had ebbed. People were kind of dejected and were wondering if it was over, right? If it was just, we were just in decline from that point on, right? So he developed a program based on the challenges of its time. Now, I think if if Reagan, it's always hard to say what any dead politician would do, but if he were around today, I think he would absolutely recognize the uh, urgency of getting the southern border under control and fixing our disastrously bad immigration system. I think he would look at American foreign policy over the last over the post cold war years and say we really did lose our way you know we 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 got ourselves involved in a bunch of things that we had no business being involved in and we forgot how to win and we set goals that were not necessarily fundamental to the american interest and that were unachievable and third i think the the, you know you know trump borrowed his slogan make america great again word for word from ronald reagan's 1980 campaign this isn't a fact that he tries to hide um but it's not a fact that most people notice either, right? That that appeals to the spiritual point that Reagan was making. Well, did Reagan say that? He, uh, that escaped me. Yeah. Did Reagan say that over and over again? Uh, I don't know that he said it over and over again, but he did say it a few times, and, and it was used in some ads. Um, he didn't, you we'll know, Trump made it his own by putting it on a hat and making it fundamental to right. his platform. Right. Reagan didn't do that. Right. Um, but, you know, Reagan had essentially the same appeal. Like, the country was great once. We're in a slump, but we can come out of it. Okay. Right? Okay. Yes. All right. I'm taking away a couple of things. And I want you to expand. This is good. We're going to talk foreign policy in a minute, but this is great stuff. I, I thought when you were talking about self-evident propositions, it's George Orwell, isn't it? The first duty of intelligent men is often the restatement of the obvious. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and he also said famously that there are some ideas so stupid, only an intellectual yes. could possibly believe okay. them. Right. So the idea right. that, you know, you know, um, Bill Clinton was, um, this is not so well known, 
But Bill Clinton was apparently in Sydney, Australia on September 10th, 2001, so the day before the 9-11 attacks. And he, and he gave the typical sort of Davosy speech on the ultimate wisdom of a borderless world. Elites love this idea of a borderless world. And they say, oh, you know, friction costs, the free movement of people, ideas, capital, commerce, and goods. It makes everything better. Well, it makes everything better for them. Ordinary people who live in real countries – um, they, they, they believe and they love their countries and they think rightly that their countries are distinct from other countries. It doesn't mean that they necessarily look down on other countries, but they do believe that other countries are other countries, right? And there has to be a border. They don't believe in the ultimate wisdom of a borderless world. That's one of those ideas that is so dumb. You have to be an intellectual or an elite to believe in, okay. but the regular, regular folks, you know, they just get it intuitively. And Trump was the first politician to speak to them and, and just say what they always believed, but they hadn't heard. I mean, he's up there on a stage in the primaries with, what was it, 16 other Republican candidates. And it took months before really only one of them finally started to talk uh, like Trump, you know, tough on immigration, uh, on our bad, or I should say on our, on our broken immigration system and about border security. And that was Ted Cruz. But, you know, who knows what would have happened if somebody had figured out that, that this is, was appealing to the voters in, like, October of 2015 and started campaigning hard on it. Um, you know, they might have been able to steal the nomination from him. I don't know. I mean, we'll never know now. Okay. Th that's one of those ideas that, that is, that is self-evident, but that has to be restated. I want to stay, this, uh, stay with this partly for my own interest in defending myself because I get yeah. this all the time. But a, a couple things. Uh, uh, first of all, a uh, reference. Where do we find Make America Great Again, if I'm looking it up, from, from Reagan? I don't remember exactly. Okay, we'll I check. just rem we'll I, re I remember reading during the campaign that, in fact, you know, this is a line that Reagan used right. sometimes. Okay, okay, um, we'll find it. Not, not, he didn't. He didn't make it his. He didn't make it his slogan. Uh, the way, in, in the sense, just repeated over and over again. The way. No, no, I Trump got that. Did in fifteen sixteen. So far, but, you've said the major difference between Reagan and Trump is Reagan didn't put it on a hat. Fair enough. Okay. okay. All right. I got, I got that. I'm looking for some other, other things. Uh, but all right, no, we'll find that. But, but you wrote the most important and consequential essay at the time of the, of the 2016 campaign, comparing the situation of the country, to the people who are on flight 93, right? I have that right. Right. And, uh, or you or someone, you know, well, did it, but by the way, where do we stand on that? Do you, do you admit to that essay or not? Oh yeah, no, I okay, was outed. Uh, I was right? outed okay. a year and a half ago. And, yeah, well, what uh, was yeah, your name in the essay? What was it? Um, formerly, it was Publius Decius Moose, but really, I, you know, like the founders, I picked a Roman name for this blog. Good, just That's great. One, one, one name, Decius. Although technically, the Latin scholars will tell you it's pronounced Decius. Okay. To which I always said, "Well, how do we know? I mean, there's yeah. nobody." There's no living Romans left to tell us how these words are pronunciated. But anyway, it looks like Decius on the page, so that's right. what I called myself. Okay. So comparing us to, to being in Flight 93, now uh, when Reagan took office, serious but not dire. Is that fair? We lo lost a lot of countries to, to the Soviets, right, with Carter uh, and other, other things. But compare and contrast, as we say in college. So I would say in Reagan, the foreign policy challenge that Reagan faced was much more serious much more dire. The domestic policy challenge that he faced was less serious and less dire, okay. right? So, uh, you know, he, he came into office with, uh, and, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to have to say some mildly critical things about Henry Kissinger, which I, I'm Fine. reluctant to do only because he's apparently a pretty big fan of Donald Trump's foreign policy. I, yeah. So I don't, I don't want to criticize him. Right? Isn't, that but, look, Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Look, famously, Reagan essentially ran against Kissinger Nixon's foreign policy. 
right? Their foreign policy, which you can read Kissinger's memoirs from the time, it's very, they lay it out very clearly, it was something called détente, which is a French word that means roughly the reduction of tensions. The underlying thought behind détente was the Soviet Union is not going to go away. It's a permanent fact of life. The Warsaw Pact is a permanent fact of life. That the world will be organized around these twin pole superpowers, you know, the free world and the communist world is a permanent fact of life. So we got to find a way to live with it. And one of the ways to live with it is to reduce tensions through arms control treaties and other means and, and so on. And Reagan uh, was highly critical of that all throughout the, the administration of Nixon when he was the governor and after his uh, governorship he did he took an extremely you know disloyal step by uh, by the standards of partisan politics of running against a republican incumbent president in the 1976 primaries that's not something that you're supposed to do if you're a loyal member of your party why did he do that i think he did it for one fundamental reason he thought that the policy of détente was a, a massive strategic mistake and disaster for the country it had to be challenged now, he came very close to actually getting the nomination. He didn't. It's almost impossible to unseat uh, an incumbent president for a nomination. Um, and, uh, you know, uniquely, most people who run against an incumbent president of their own party in a primary are never forgiven by their party and have no chance of ever getting elected to anything again. They're just they're just they're just read out of the party, cast out as disloyal traitors. Reagan comes back four years later and he wins the nomination, partly on the strength of his 1976 run, because he showed the weaknesses uh, of that argument. Yeah. Now, the Soviets helped a lot by showing the weakness of that argument by saying, oh, well, great. You guys are going to say we're a permanent fact and you want to reduce tensions. Uh, we'll return the favor by invading Afghanistan <laughs> and by sort of upping our international, you know, perfidy and aggression around the world. So he was vindicated by events, you might say. And I think that helped him um, get back in the good graces of Republicans in 1980 and win the, the nomination. So we don't face any challenge. We face al-Qaeda, which is very bad. We face ISIS, which is much less bad, thanks to Trump beating the hell out of them over the last 18 months. We don't face anything as dire, I don't think, as the, you know, the foreign policy challenge that Reagan faced in 1980. So you I could have written that essay then. Uh, well, the, but the domestic policy challenge is... I think was in 2016 and now a, a lot more dire. Right. You know, look at look at the so Reagan gets elected. His signature domestic program, despite Tip O'Neill's best efforts, was elect was uh, passed through Congress with very large bipartisan majorities. Um, you know, O'Neill tried to hold the Democratic and he held he was the you know, Democrats controlled the House and he tried to hold the Democratic caucus together. Um, to oppose the Reagan's tax cuts and some of his other legislative uh, initiatives in 1981-82, and he couldn't um, because the, the, uh, you know Democrats defected on mass to support these 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 measures that were broadly popular and effective. We don't have anything like that today. Uh, the Democrats haven't you know I will probably get one or two red state Democrats up for re-election to vote, for instance, for Kavanaugh, right? Um, but when it comes to Trump's legislative agenda, he didn't get he, he got no Democratic votes on uh, reforming Obamacare. He got, as I recall, no Democratic votes for his tax reform legislation. Um, the country is uh, far more divided than it was now uh, than it was then. But really, to me, the deep threat that I wrote about in my essay was I foresaw, and I, I I have no reason to believe I was wrong about that. People keep asking me that question. They want me to recant and say, oh, you were just hysterical in the moment, right? Don't you regret having written that? And I always say, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, what I foresaw had the, had the Democrat Hillary Clinton won was a, almost uh, a permanent 
rule of the administrative state, where elections would still take place as, as more or less formalities, but the political branches would no longer control the government. They would be controlled by essentially the fourth branch, the bureaucracy, and by a kind of, that America at large would be turned into the functional equivalent of a blue state like New York or California, where yes, they still hold elections every two and four years, but the elections don't fundamentally change policy in any way. The state just keeps going in a more and more left-wing direction. That's what I foresaw from a Hillary Clinton election. I think had she won, she would have been easily reelected in four years. Um, she would have done all kinds of, she and, and the various Democrats she would have brought in would have done all kinds of things to the federal government and in partnership with the private sector that would have just further entrenched and cemented their hold on power. And I thought that this, that was that election was essentially a last chance to forestall that. Uh, I still think that's the case. I'm not sure, you know, that we we have forestalled it. We for, we forestalled it for a time, but you know, the, the Trump presidency yeah. for this to work, it's got to succeed. Yeah, I was in a conversation not too long ago with the group of people, with the vice president. And he had just sort of asked us to free associate and talk about that different things. And someone brought up the same point. They said, if we were just at the edge, as a lot of smart people wrote, or not a lot, a few smart people wrote, you and a couple of others, uh, of going down this, this drain that you just described, um, are we happy now, or is this just a temporary reprieve? Well, uh, well that remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, the president has done a lot of things that are good things, but much more remains to be done. We need to, we need to reelect him, that's for sure. Um, we've seen how hard a time he's had staffing up his administration with people who are both competent and loyal to his agenda. Um, that's yeah, sure. To some extent to be expected because he divided the party. So it wasn't like he's coming in with a unified Republican Party behind him. Um, you know, a great many people in the Republican Party had openly said, you know, I'm never Trump. Right. Even if he gets elected, yep. I can't support him. Yep. Even if he yep. does the yep. right thing. Yep. I mean, how many how many nominal Republicans this is somewhat of a rhetorical question. How many nominal Republicans have written op-eds along the lines of, I support these, the following seven things that President Trump is, has done, and yet I wish Hillary Clinton were president? Yeah. Well, I can personally, off the top of my head, think of you know, three or four uh, of such uh, those op-eds along those lines that have actually been written. That's not just me making that up. People have made that argument. I agree. I agree with what he's doing. I still wish Hillary Clinton were president. So. When your party is filled with people like that, it's not easy to fill the federal government with good, um, uh, you know, with good appointees. You, you know, we we talked about uh, your essay in which you compared us with in this in this election to Night Flight ninety three, that we would go, uh, you know, go down in flames if we elected the wrong person. And you just described what that would be that we'd become a kind of permanent deep state, a permanent deep blue state. Um, yeah, but. Um, Another kind of warning, uh, and this is something I worry about, maybe you'll counsel me not to, was issued by my former intern staff member uh, uh, and now uh, speaker, Paul Ryan, uh, when he said, we've got you know only a few years to turn these deficits around, the spending around. Is that a worry of yours? Uh, because the president has indicated no interest in getting the entitlements uh, under control, or at least these hasn't been explicit well, about Well, look, I, I would have to say, first and foremost, that it's an argument or it's an issue so complex and large, it, it's, it's beyond yes. my comprehension. Yes. Um, I, I, in my own defense, 
I'm not as worried about it as Paul Ryan, and this may not be a, a good reason, but one of the reasons is we've had these for so long, and they've been, we've been told they're going to bring us down at any minute, and yet everything else keeps going. So I agree, you know, the famous line I love, I quote all the time from Herb Stein, the economist. Uh, one of his, his most quotable sentences yeah. is to the effect that anything that can't go on forever won't. Right? Yes, right. It can't go on forever. It will have to stop. But, you know, do I foresee an imminent crash in two to four years? I don't. Now, it doesn't mean it won't happen. I, I don't. I think, too, in this case, um, I was asked a similar question by Steve Hayes, the editor of the Weekly Standard. And we had an interesting event earlier this year where he invited me. You'd think that I'd be the last person to get invited to a Weekly Standard conference, right? And it was an odd fit. But I've known Steve for a long time. And we're old friends. And he said, you come to the conference. There'll be about two or 300 people in the room. Probably two-thirds of them, even though they're our conferees, will be pro-Trump. And he, he, you and I, he, meaning he and Steve and me, will sit on the stage and we'll have a debate. And Steve will take the anti-Trump side and I'll take the pro-Trump side, which is what we did. And he asked me that question. And I said, so, Steve, here's, the, here's what I'd say, though. The, po- the politics of it to me in the following way. Uh, Trump has – one of the reasons why the Republicans were doing so poorly with Rust Belt, Heartland – blue collar, lower middle class and middle class, but the stagnant or even the declining middle class, those voters is because the Republicans came to be seen by these people as just the party of capital and big business in wealth creating centers on the coast. All they wanted to do was cut taxes for the upper income and, you know, cement gains to industries that were already gaining. And they were going to do it at the expense of voters like them by cutting their benefits, you know, that, that they've come to rely on. And those voters were just said, I, I can't vote for this. Like, so that's how Mitt Romney, who's a decent man, I voted for him. I wish he had won the 2012 election. I, I would have been delighted if he won the 2012 election. But that's how Mitt Romney came across to a lot of those voters. And he didn't, he didn't turn them out in any way. So Trump you know, wisely figured this out and said, look, those voters who have not seen their wages rise in 15, 20, or 30 years, who have seen their health care costs explode, to them, some of these programs are lifelines, the only thing still connecting them to anything like uh, you know, an American economy or a standard of living that they, that they and their families once enjoyed. Uh, so I'm not going to run against those programs. That's, that's political suicide, right? And so Steve says, okay, fine. Well, then you're just pandering to, you know, you're pandering to a segment of the electorate, and you're not telling them the truth about what these programs are. To which I responded, well, look, Steve, and I would say this to anybody, to Paul Ryan, I would say, look, you're only going to successfully reform those programs, right? The, the Social Security, Medicare, and big entitlement programs are not going to be reformed on the Obamacare model. That is to say, rammed through on a party line vote via reconciliation and legislative gimmickry. This is going to have yeah. to be done the same way these programs were initially passed with big bipartisan majorities to give um, – to give the reforms legitimacy, popular legitimacy. You know, I was just reading a, a, a book yeah. review by Chris DeMuth, who's the former president of AEI. Um, and he, it was a book about Congress. And he made this point, which I've made, heard before, but it's so true. He said, look, every big popular social or government program until Obamacare in the history of the Republic, whether you're going all the way back to the Homestead Act and land-grant colleges in the Civil War to Social Security to Medicare, they were all passed with giant bipartisan legislative majorities. That's why they have legitimacy. That's why they're popular. So you're only going to reform them with giant bipartisan majorities. And you're not going to get a giant bipartisan majority if that cohort of the people that I talked about who appealed to Trump oppose the reform. So first, you got to find a way to win over that group to the Republican Party, get them to trust you, 
get them to believe that you're fundamentally on their side, that you're not just the green eye shade from the coast coming okay. in to cut their benefits. Okay. I, if I, you can do that, right? If, if you can't do that, then I would say to Paul Ryan and to Steve and to everybody else, you're not, then the reform that you're seeking will never happen. Never happen. You okay. may think it's urgent, but it's never going to happen. But if you get that, it's a necessary, not, but not sufficient condition, but it is a necessary yes. condition. It is so, a necessary condition. So maybe second term, maybe, huh? Maybe, okay. maybe. Okay. All right. Listen, this is this is great. Um, we were supposed to talk about foreign policy, but it, we didn't. It's your <laughs> fault because you were incandescently brilliant on all these other things. But could we reserve another time to talk about foreign policy? Yes, absolutely. This is wonderful, Michael. Really wonderful stuff, and we get great feedback, and we will send it to you. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you, Michael Anton. Thank you very much. Right. Bye. That was Michael Anton, former senior national security official in the Trump administration. I want to just replay a little bit, just a couple of minutes of my interview with Martha McCallum last week, give you my perspective on all this stuff on Donald Trump, the coincidence of the Woodward book, the op-ed, the so-called anonymous, or at least unknown author of the op-ed, uh, and um, the other attacks that we're seeing about chaos in the White House uh, and, and so on and, and what I make of it. So let me let me let me play a little of that. I can't do better now than I than I did in listing what I think the uh, significance is and what the takeaway is or ought to be on this. So uh, we have this situation that's uh, I don't know whether it's laughable or appalling in this op ed where this guy bravely says uh, he speaks up to the president trying to thwart the president. What exactly is he trying to thwart the president from doing uh, getting rid of ISIS, uh, getting two excellent uh, people on the Supreme Court, uh, lowering taxes, stimulating an economy like we've never seen before, getting the Keystone Pipeline moving again, cracking down on MS-13 and sanctuary cities. I mean, John Kasich was in a clip earlier in, the, in your show, Martha, mm -hmm. saying it's chaos and he's the commander of chaos. If this is chaos, let there be chaos. Let's have some more chaos. I mean, he is getting stuff done. You know, and it is, it's remarkable when you step outside of Washington, um, as you do yeah, in North Carolina, right. and you, you sort of kind of get a feel for what is actually on people's minds. And I, whoa, the camera's having a problem there. Um, I, I was reminded of a, a news item that happened, you know, last week that Mike Pompeo was supposed to participate in some of these meetings. The president pulled him back, said, "Don't go. I'm not pleased with what the North Koreans are saying right now." Yeah. And then, lo and behold, you have this extraordinarily successful meeting between the North and the South, and and Kim Jong Un wants to make it very clear that he would like to have those discussions continue right. about the nuclearization bill. Well, first North Korea, then North Carolina. North Korea, yeah. I, North, Mr. Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un, says he wants to uh, deal with President Trump, and he trusts him. This is something no other modern president or any president has achieved. Uh, and in North Carolina, a friend of ours who lives in a small town in North Carolina just said, she and her husband just said, this is, this is garbage. This is nonsense. This is crazy. Who would care about someone writing anonymously for the New York Times? So when you talk about the unhinged, I think it's a lot of the people uh, who are taking Taking this thing to the to the panic point, yeah. I saw another cable station. I won't say what it begins with, what it is. It begins with C and ends with N. That they said, total chaos at the White House as uh, everything is riven, everything is falling apart. Mm -hmm. Well, if the, the record I cited just in part is what it means to fall apart, may we all fall apart this uh, that way. The one thing this does do, though, doesn't it, Martha? It confirms what Donald Trump has been saying that there is definitely uh, a deep state. 
definitely had a lot of people out to put him down. And let's remember the serious constitutional issue here. He was elected. This anonymous guy and these other people were not elected. Was not. And that, when you thwart him, clear. you're thwarting the American people. Yeah, you're thwarting the American I, people. I, I, absolutely. You know, I can't help but wonder if this person who wrote this is, you know, thinking about their next job. And it, it's so insular inside the beltway. And you have all these headlines about constant chaos, um, which may or may not end up to be true. Right. Um, but, it, you know, they think everything's about to implode and they're worried about their next job. They're trying to make sure that it's very clear that they weren't necessarily in uh, with the agenda at the White House so that they can maybe pave the way for, for a future. Um, pretty short-term thinking. Yeah, yeah. Phil, thank you. Yeah, at the Harvard Business School, at yeah, the Harvard ahead. Business School, they talk about destructive innovation. So thank you. Thank you very you much. Think that's an example. <laughs> Phil, thank you very much. Good to see you tonight. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 